prosecution outlined how accounting practices what fuck? What? did not What kind of likeness is that? If they were great artists, they'd be in a museum. I'm fucking fodder for cartoonists now. it's that time once again for another brand new episode of gutter boys gutter boys is a small press comics podcast about the ins the outs the highs and the very deep endless lows of making comics i'm your host jb with my co-host cam for this episode episode 62 we're joined by the legendary john porcelino a Beloit, Wisconsin-based cartoonist known for his ongoing autobio series, King Cat Comics, uh, as well as his uh, distro, Spit and a Half. We talk a little bit about, uh, well, we talk a lot about his uh, history with zines and comics and uh, the very early beginnings of Spit and a Half and what the future holds for uh, for John. Uh, but before we get into that, as usual, we have some news and shout outs. Uh, but yeah. this one's going to be pretty brief. Uh, so in news, uh, we have uh, a, an ongoing story about uh, one Al Columbia. Uh, now, we here at the podcast are fans of his work. We think he's an excellent cartoonist. Just for the record, they're pretty spooky. Uh, that being said, it's also been very well known that Al is not a well person. Uh, Al Columbine, I heard they're calling him. Oh, boy. And uh, I didn't say that, just to be clear. For the record, Cam said that. And Cam's address can be found at... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Uh, no, yeah. Uh, he's been uh, tweeting a lot more lately. Posting on Instagram as well. Yeah, yeah. And uh, usually when Al says some wacky stuff, you know, everybody's like, yeah, you know, Al's Al, what are you going to do? However, lately he's been kind of going off the deep end, it seems, posting some pretty ominous stuff. Uh, I believe on his Instagram, he posted a photo of himself looking uh, out through the window, uh, not at the camera. I don't really know who's taking that photo, by the way. Right, I'd yeah. I'd really like to know who that is. Unless he has one of those, like, camera stands. Either way, pretty weird, Al. But, uh, uh, see, that's a better name. Weird Al. Weird Al, yeah. He should go with that. Uh, so, the last post he made on October 24th, uh, it says, Hello to the remaining seven people awaiting parcels. Please allow for gaps in conversation and update regarding your books, as I am currently a fugitive of justice on charges of attempted murder, strangulation, assault and battery, malicious vandalism, something absurdly named intention to commit a crime, and assault with a deadly weapon. Many people did many bad things to me at once, and I confess I seem to only presently exist for the purpose of revenge and expect such charges to multiply across state lines across the country as each villain drops as time unfolds. None of this is what I wanted, but have no choice but to pursue things this way now. Sometimes you have to push back, maybe. I am not really sure where all this will end up, but you will get your signed and unsigned books no matter what. 
smile in parentheses. No worries on that. Nice meeting you all and very best. Hugs and kisses, Alfred. Yes. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> pretty much everybody that's replied to this very cool post, everybody seems to think that he's either joking or offering him a safe house. <laughs> well, yeah, or offering him a safe house, which is, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So, well, as a follow up to this, you know, he alludes to a lot right there, you know, saying he's a fugitive and so forth. Uh, being journalists here at the Gutter Boys podcast, I typed in Alfred Columbia Assault. And uh, one of the first results on Google came up. It is an article from 2014. Uh, and I've also seen online that this article may not be this Al Columbia, but age of the uh, culprit here adds up and it kind of aligns with some stuff that we're about to get into. But Fox61.com uh, has an article, Torrington Man Accused of Assaulting Grandmother. Police responded to 180 Green Ridge Road on Friday on a report of a domestic disturbance and arrested Alfred Columbia, 43, of Torrington. Police say Columbia is being accused of breaking his grandmother's shoulder and injuring her arm. Columbia is charged with third-degree assault on an elderly person and second-degree breach of peace. He is being held on a $100,000 bond. This is from a long time ago. My thought is maybe he's on some kind of probation and breaking probation by catching another charge or maybe leaving the state. Um, I know before we were talking, you think that it might be something completely unrelated, possibly? Yeah, uh... I guess I just don't see these charges being a topic of discussion like six years after the fact. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. Well, the only reason why like I can see this, you know, obviously, you know, it's assault Al Columbia. I thought it was a fake name, to be honest. I thought it was a pseudonym. But, you know, it's it's not a common name that I feel like people would have. It sounds like a, a 1940s gangster or some shit. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so I just maybe. But um, our boy Big Gleb, previous guest, mixed it up a little bit with uh, Al Columbine. I mean, Columbia on the uh, the Twitter timeline. Yeah, keep it up, Cam. Yeah. Keep I, it up. You know. He's going to find you. Yeah. Well, uh, Gleb tweeted out, Al Columbia is killing grandmas out there. What a wild year. And then Al Columbia was not tagged in this post, mind you, but Vanity searched himself while on the lamb and uh, tweeted at Gleb, ha ha, you know, I'd rather be responsible for beheading a hundred Russian grandmothers than be responsible for the work you produce, but that's me. Sadly, no grandmothers on the list of violent executions, unless you'd like me to add yours, smile, in parentheses, dot, dot, dot. Gleb replies, too late, both of mine are long dead. Al Columbia then replies, oh good, then I can scatter their bones on your front steps. And Gleb typed, oof. And then Al Columbia responded, <laughs> ha ha, and then in parentheses, claps hands fiendishly, which I just picture the fucking gif of Heath Ledger as the Joker. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's going full hands. Joker mode. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's the small press Joker, baby. Every poo-poo is pee-pee time. But not every pee-pee it's poo-poo time, huh? You ever think about that one, Mr. Batman, huh? But yeah, so he's going full Joker mode. Um, as an update, though, uh, this is, uh, you know, from five days ago. He then tweeted, if it hasn't been run into the ground by its founder yet, we're thinking a visit to Meta Studios in Georgia might be nice this Christmas. There's an angry, drunk, rapist pig working there I've been wanting to have a conversation with for almost 30 years now, dot, dot, dot. So he's in uh, Oregon. Oh, there was an older tweet that I didn't mention that he just said it was something he's got a lot of tweets since then, but it was something along the lines of in Oregon, being a fugitive of justice is exhilarating. It was something along those lines. So he's somewhere on the West Coast right now. Looks like if you're following the murder map, he's wanting to make his way to Georgia. But after this tweet, he uh, posted a screenshot of someone's house from like a Google Maps view and wrote the new year, comma, California, dot, dot, dot. 
And uh, it's kind of scary that Al Columbia is in California, uh, mainly because he's probably somewhere in Northern California. And uh, you know who else is in Northern California? Enemy of the show, Ramon Villalobos. And uh, <laughs> Ramon decided that, you know, he saw Gleb mixing it up on the timeline with Al and decided that he wanted to get involved. So, um, you know, he found a YouTube trailer for a uh, David Lynch looking horror movie that Al Columbia is making or has made. Uh, real creepy stuff there. And then uh, put the words, you know, dumb bitch alert on it and got into it with Al. So if, if Ramon ends up dead, uh, it's because Al Columbia is in California right now. Probably where Ramon is, you know, if you're following the timeline of events. So RIP to Ramon Villalobos. It was real. That being said, if he survives until Thursday, um, I think we're going to talk more about Al Columbia and movies on Mexiflantaya. We're supposed to talk about all the streaming movies and they want us as what they consider, you know, quote unquote, the voice of indie comics to them because they're off in their own little world. They want us to come they're on. Above to talk. It, yeah, they want they us say, to. Yeah. yeah, they want us to talk about Al Columbia on their show. So uh, that'll probably be out in March of 2022, though. Uh, so we're going to go ahead and cover Al a little bit here. So, uh, yeah, final thoughts on this? I mean... Uh, not really, because I don't want to die. But yeah. <laughs> uh, the, I, I think... Uh, I mean, I want to die, but, you know, on my own terms. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, the, I, uh, you know, just want to reiterate that point about being on uh, Mex Fontayo. There's a lot more news that we wanted to touch on. Uh, we're doing uh, the boys over at Mex uh, a solid. Mm-hmm. We're save those bits. Poor Patreon numbers over there. So, yeah. So, uh, stick around for that episode. Uh, whenever it comes up, I don't know when that's going to happen, but I'm sure we'll let you know. They they need the listeners. Yeah. So, you know. Uh, I will say that we're supposed to talk about Many Saints in Newark over there as well at the same time. So, if you want our extensive coverage and feedback on that movie, that's going to be the place to find it. I'm sure we'll tell you when we're on it on the intro to a future episode. Yes. Uh, So that being said, we should segue into shout outs. Again, we're going to make this pretty brief. Uh, We did make an Instagram post kind of highlighting all the stuff we've uh, been uh, receiving in the mail lately. Uh, As Cam had pointed out in the previous episode, we're a little behind on those shout outs. So, you know, many apologies to those that sent stuff and uh, are still waiting on that. Yeah. So if you want to send us your comics, you know, we love to read them. You can send them to me and I forward them to JB. Uh, JB hasn't gotten a chance to see these that we're about to shout out because I'm going to see them in a couple weeks. So I'm just going to hand deliver uh, everything that you all have been sending in. But if you want to send us your work, hit us up on social media at gutterboyspod. And we'll hook you up with an address, shout you out on the show, and uh, post pictures of your work on our uh, accounts. But um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, We have here issue two of The Last Aviatrix uh, by Buster Cagle. Uh, (laughs) uh, That's such a good name. Uh, Buster. Uh, really digging the last issue, so I'm excited to uh, finally get a hold of this one. Uh, looks pretty solid. According to Cam, it's a very nice print job. I don't know. I don't have it in hand. Uh, issue one was nice, so I'm going to assume it's uh, pretty much the same idea in yeah, terms of printing. It's the same yeah. production, and you know, it just goes to show that, you know, in my opinion... Uh, you could spend, you know, a, an extra 50 cents on professionally printing a comic. I'm all for like, you know, a fucking hand printed, hand stapled zine. But if you've got the resources to professionally print something, just shell out the extra few bucks, charge an extra buck or two. Uh, it really goes a long way, in my opinion. Yeah. And uh, you can check out more of Buster's work on his Instagram. He's at Buster Cagle, uh, C-A-G-L-E, I believe. Yeah. Yep. Uh, or you can go to his website, BusterCagle.com. Hell yeah. And uh, friend of the show and frequent advertiser, Ian Densford, sent over some physical copies of Soggy Landing. Pretty sure that these are to pitch to publishers. Um, so hopefully it gets picked up. 
the work is great. You know, a lot of watercolor stuff by Ian, a lot of watercolor stuff by Ian, a lot of good world building here. Really funny uh, dialogue, uh, really awesome stuff in the first issue. Sorry, Ian, I haven't gotten around to reading the other two, but the first book of the three was great. I am looking forward to reading the next two. Uh, you could follow Ian online at Ian Densford and read Soggy Landing at welcome underscore two underscore soggy underscore landing. Okay, and then from Mason Dimefiend, we have Wet Hot Cartoon Sex Dungeon Issues 1 and 2. Uh, these are black and white zine comics with some very naughty stuff in it. We really got a lot smutty of stuff. Boobies, some, some wee-wees. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, the good stuff. Issue two particularly is uh, really great. The cover is just like a side profile shadow view of a torso with a giant boner. It fucking rocks. Yeah, can't go wrong with that. Really no. filthy stuff. Yes, so Gutter Boys approve. Uh, yeah, you can check out more of Mason's work at their Instagram, at Mason Dimebag, uh, or you can pick up a copy of these and many other zines that they've made over at MasonDimefiend.BigCartel.com. And then Dane Georges sent over a stack of comics for both of us and wrote us a note. Uh, the note said, Hey, Cam and JB, I'm a big fan of the show. Keep spreading the good word. I've included Doomskull numbers one through three, X-Ray number one, which is a collection of webcomics, Sleepless Sights, and The Passenger, which are both horror one-shots. You can check out Dane's work on Instagram at Dane Georges or their website, DaneGeorges.com. And uh, Dane, I did get a chance to look at your horror one-shots. Really cool stuff. Uh, love the uh, actual printing of the books. It looks great as well. These are, you know, DIY uh, books that actually look really good. So kind of, you know, contrary to the last point I just tried to make about professionally printing, if you're making stuff with care like Dane is, I think that that, uh, you know, deserves to be praised as well. Um, really good stuff, though, Dane. Uh, really fluid drawings and uh, great storytelling, great uh, panel layouts as well. Uh, looking forward to checking out the rest of your stuff. And then we have from CJ Safest Neal. Issue number one of Bleak. It looks like it's a black and white Xerox zine style comic. I can't really say much about this because I don't have it in hand, obviously. Yeah, but, it's like uh, a humorous... It's like an like, autobio, right? Yeah, like humorous autobio, dark comedy kind of strips about the workplace. Uh, okay. From what I've read, uh, really cool stuff. Uh, yeah, thanks for sending it in, CJ. Uh, looking forward to seeing more of your work. Okay, you can find him on Instagram at CJ Safest Neil Comics. Uh, that's CJ Safest, C-E-P-H-A-S-N-E-I-L Comics. Alrighty, one more shout out here. Uh, friend of the show, previous guest, uh, Rock Nassoon has a new comic coming out from Late Comeback Press called Hello Goodbye. It releases this week. Has a really cool transparent cover. Uh, looks like they're doing two other books in the drop as well. Chaos for Korea, which is a collection of photos documenting Korea outside of mainstream pop culture, and a book called Trip from Hell, which is a story recounting a trip that takes a turn for the worst between two friends. Uh, definitely check those titles out this week. You can grab them at latecomebackpress.com. And then finally, we want to give a big shout out to the good folks over at Silver Sprocket. And we are anxiously awaiting their fall drop of new comics. And uh, since they're pretty consistent about the quality of the work that they put out, uh, we will no doubt be just as impressed about this wave as we've had uh, the previous waves. Uh, I actually don't remember who's all going to be in this drop, but uh, we'll discuss it on the next shout out section. So, Avi, uh, I hope you sent over Fun Girl. Oh, yeah. There you go. So that's one of them. All right, so we got some uh, running and gunning to do over on uh, Call of Duty, right? We we gotta we gotta deploy. Yeah, we're not even gonna plug the Patreon this episode, so uh, just stick around after the break, and we'll be back with John Porcelino. We'll be right back. Floodland brings together a series of personal and natural disasters featured in comics by Australian cartoonist and cult hero Jonathan McBurney. 
Beginning with the protagonist's chronic illness, it relates a long period of bizarre artistic practices, awkward art school relationships, the brutal reality of the 9 to 5 grind of the submerging artist, and culminates in the massive flood in his hometown. The peripheral characters whose lives orbit the same places and occasionally overlap through mundane circumstances include Batskiat, an artist come superhero whose successes are vastly out of proportion with his talents, Picasso Minotaur, a brawny beefcake sculptor with fire in his belly and hate in his heart, and Kirby Kelly, a hapless and constantly flummoxed experiment gone wrong. Floodland is a 96-page hardcover available from ArgleBargleBooks.com. Check out JonathanMcBurney.com and King underscore of underscore nails on Instagram for more beefcake, wrestling, and existential conundrums. Rust Belt Review is a quarterly comics lit magazine featuring serialized and short form comics from some of the most exciting cartoonists in the small press scene today. Volume 1 features work from Gutter alums, M.S. Harkness, Audra Stang, and Caleb Arecchio, along with work by Andrew Greenstone, Sean Knickerbocker, and Juan Jose Fernandez. You can order your copy of Rust Belt Review today by going to rustbeltreview.org. Enter in promo code GUTTER to receive two bucks off your order. Again, that website is rustbeltreview.org. Promo code GUTTER. To our program. Welcome back from the break. Today, we are joined by a very special guest, uh, author of King Cat Comics and the collected editions that recently came out from Drawn and Quarterly, Map of My Heart, King Cat Classics, as well as Perfect Example. Sorry, I had the spines facing away from me. Um, <laughs> John Porcelino. Uh, John, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right. All right. Are you still in uh, a Beloit? I live in Beloit, Wisconsin. It's a little confusing because my P.O. box is in South Beloit, Illinois, but I'm right on the state line of Illinois and Wisconsin. So when I first moved out here, I was on the Illinois side and then uh, moved to the Wisconsin side a couple of years later, but I kept the old P.O. box. So and it's very, very confusing, very interesting. But yeah, so I live in Beloit, Wisconsin, but all my mail goes to South Beloit, Illinois. Right on. (laughs) Fascinating. Where were you from before Beloit? You were in Chicago, is that right? Well, I was born and raised in Chicago, um, lived most of my life in the, the Chicago area. So when I was, uh, I guess I was 10 or so, we moved to the Chicago suburbs, northwest suburbs. And that's where I went to like junior high and high school. And then for college, I went to Northern Illinois University, which is in DeKalb, Illinois, which is like 60 miles west of Chicago or so. And so um, after that, I kind of bummed around a little bit doing a bunch of bad jobs and stuff and trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. And um, so, but I've, I've lived all over the country. I, from DeKalb, I moved to Denver. I lived there for a while. I came back to Chicago area, went back to Denver. I ended up in San Francisco for three years, back to Denver for like another four or five years. <laughs> and then I lived in Gainesville, Florida for <laughs> three months and then ended up back here. So, what were you doing in uh, Gainesville for three months? Uh, well, it was one of those life things where I had just gotten divorced for the second time, and ah, okay. um, Denver was getting super gentrified. 
Mm-hmm. And when I got divorced, my landlady at the time took that as an opportunity to like double the rent that I was paying. Jesus. Oh, that's, so that's great. I, I couldn't yeah. do it anymore in Denver. It was just impossible to survive there. And so Tom Hart and Leela Corman, his wife, that's when they were first just getting ready to start, saw the sequential artist workshop down in Gainesville. And so I was like, well, okay, I'll go down to Gainesville. And uh, they were supposed to come down. I, I moved down there in July. They were supposed to come down there in September. And then they had all kinds of problems and they delayed going down there for a year. And so then it was kind of like, well, I'm in Gainesville, Florida. <laughs> I have no reason to be here anymore because the school's not starting and right. it was just too weird. So I ended up coming back out this way and it's just com- relatively random where I live. <laughs> yeah. So this is all very boring. You'll ha- you'll have to edit out the boring parts, but uh, yeah, <laughs> no, so no. Just, I've lived, I've lived all over this country and I mean really what it is it's the story of just trying to find lower overhead yeah <laughs> totally yeah. I, 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 find, I finally found it I finally found it where I'm at now and um, you know Beloit is like a medium sized midwestern river town it's like 36,000 people or something but it's like an hour to Milwaukee an hour to Madison and an hour to Chicago so it's like pretty centrally located between those three pretty happening places. Yeah. And it's really cheap to live here. I mean, it has its problems and stuff, but it's relatively, it's pretty quiet and, you know, relatively peaceful and stuff. So it was, it took about a year to get over the culture shock of not like living in a city situation. But once I did, I I really, I like it here. It's just, it's just easy to be here, you know? Well, and it seems like something you've embraced in your work, you know, that, uh, you know, Midwestern life. So it's like, at least from a reading standpoint, it seems like you're very content with where you are. Do you feel like you'll ever move again? I hope not. I mean, one of my yeah. life goals is to never load a U-Haul again in my life. You know, Hell yeah. that's, that's, I just I can't yeah, do it anymore. You know, so um, you know, even when I was out in Denver, which was really kind of my home away from home. I mean, I loved it there. I kind of, I, I, in the back of my mind, I knew like I was never going to feel settled or in my place until I was back in the Midwest. I just missed it too much, which I, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of people who aren't from the Midwest, when they hear somebody say something like that, it's just utterly bewildering to them. But I just, you know, this is where I grew up. This is where I feel comfortable. And they're my my people. And, uh, you know, so I'm just, I'm, I was very glad to get back here. The circumstances of ending up back here were pretty rough. It was a really hard time. I was, like I said, I was twice divorced. I was completely broke. It was real touch and go for a while, but uh, gradually settled in and things got a lot better after that, like for six months. So, but I'm, I'm glad to be back here. Right on. And I'm going to kind of jump all over the place, like chronologically with this interview, because I want to talk about, you know, when you first started working, but I kind of want to talk about Spit and a Half a little bit, the distro you've been running for years. Um, what's the story of Spit and a Half? Was that something that, you know, you started distroing just, you know, a few zines from, you know, trading? Because I mean, you've been doing it for quite a long time now. Yeah. So at the end of that period, when I when I graduated from college and got a job driving a forklift, I worked in like a warehouse. Hell yeah. And um, I did that for a couple of years. And a friend of mine had moved out to Denver, like childhood friend. And he was trying to like 
enticed me to go out there because it was so cheap to live out there. And I had never lived anywhere outside of Chicago. I'd barely even traveled outside the Chicago area. So I just kind of took the plunge and moved to Denver. And it was so cheap. I mean, I think my rent was $175 a month or something. And that was for like this beautiful 1930s city apartment and stuff like that. And uh, at the time, I was always involved in kind of in music and independent music, punk rock and stuff like that. And at this time, there were a couple things. There was the Ajax catalog, which was run out of Chicago by Tim Adams. And that was just like newsprint, you know, cheap magazine that came out every couple months. And it just He had hundreds of like weird self-released music or independent record label bands and, you know, CDs and vinyl and stuff like that. And then there was also the K catalog out of uh, Olympia, Washington, which was that whole, you know, I don't know how familiar guys are with that, but this whole kind of like, in the true sense of the word, indie rock scene. And they would sell, you know, their friends records and stuff mail order. And I thought when I moved to Denver, I didn't want to drive a forklift again. So I I thought, you know, I know enough people in comics now that I could maybe do something similar to that, Mm -hmm. just with comics and zines, you know, and run it out of my house and have no business overhead and get a PO box. And so that's how I started. And it was just, you know, I, I wrote to 12 of my friends or whatever who did comics and David Lasky and Jenny Zarakis and stuff like that, Jeff Senek, and said like, hey, will you send me 10 copies of your latest zine on consignment and I'll sell them and I'll pay you, you know, when they sell. And that's really how it started. I think the first catalog was like four pages or something like that and um, uh, just grew from there. And timeline wise, what year is this? 1992, summer of 92. Okay. I think I think the first catalog maybe was September of 92 because I was I was taking my uh, a couple months just to get enough stock in and figure out how I wanted to do things and stuff. And it was a total disaster at first because I didn't you know I didn't know how to run a business and I was a punk rock kid so like the idea of making money was you know sinful and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. I did all <laughs> kinds of. stuff stupid thing. I it didn't it didn't make money for maybe the first four years or so. But then once I kind of worked out the kinks and realized you can't just like I, I had this thing that was like free shipping on every order, you know, and people would order from France and I'd pay whatever thirty dollars <laughs> to send, you oh. know, a couple and of course the zines back then it was like a dollar, dollar right. fifty for a comic or something. So it was like it was ridiculous. So once I figured it out, it actually started to make money. And you know, my my whole goal with it was just to try to have some kind of more steady income than what you could get from being an underground cartoonist in this country mm-hmm. and and still and help out my friends and stuff like that, you know. But my goal was just to not have to have some kind of straight job. And, you know, combine that with just, you know, absolute poverty <laughs> living, <laughs> right. you know, which I, I didn't really have many vices or or bills or anything. So it was just like total bare bones living and making my comics and playing in a band and doing the distro. When I read that interview you did with Austin English in the Domino magazine, I forget the title, um, the newsprint one. And it's Comicot. Comicot, yes. And uh, it seems like, you know, Spit and a Half is still your quote unquote day job. So, uh, you know, I want to thank you for providing everybody's work and, you know, avenues to get it. Because I think that is one big pitfall of uh, independent comics is, you know, no distribution. So, Spit and a Half is kind of, you know, like a a lighthouse, if you will. Um, So, it's really cool that you're still doing that. Do you have any plans of continuing it? Are you wanting to wrap it up eventually? 
Well, it, yeah, actually, the last couple years, I've been threatening to retire. And I think the goal I have set for myself now is I just turned 53. So I'm, I want to give it another couple years. So maybe on my birthday in whatever 2023, I think is when I'm going to, I'm using air quotes, retire from the distro. <laughs> just because it's, I mean, it's certainly keeps me busy. It keeps me too busy at this point. It's, it keeps, you know, I, I, I am spending so much time running the distro that I don't have time to do my own work so much anymore. And, and I'm just getting older and I'm more tired. You know, I, I have so much less energy than I used to have. So the last couple of years, I've kind of behind the scenes been talking to people like I talk to Austin all the time. And my hope would be that by the time I quit the distro, there'll be enough other, you know, distribution infrastructure mm -hmm. in place with, with Domino and, and uh, there's, there's people starting up little things all the time. And I'm super encouraging to anybody who wants to do that kind of thing. And anybody who wants to and wants advice or, you know, needs help with it. I'm totally willing to help out with that. It's just, I feel like it's time I, I've done, you know, I started in 92. I took 10 years off when I was ill, but still I've, I've run it for over 20 years all told. And, uh, you know, I, I, I like the idea of letting go of it and letting some other younger people with more energy, you know, take over that aspect of things and just working on my own stuff till I croak. <laughs> For sure. So it's that'll be interesting to see you at a show without the distro, because that's usually where I do my shopping at Spit and a Half is when I see you at a show. Uh -huh. That's so uh, it'll be interesting to not see a setup with the distro. I'm sure it'll be easier on you, though, less of a load. To yeah, I mean, it, I could, yeah, I, I've definitely I, I, you know, if and when I do retire, I'm not going to be one of those people who like jumps on a yacht and sails around the world. I'm going to be like at the going away party, like crying in my cake and stuff <laughs> because it really has become such a important part of my own life. You know, it's just, it's, it's kind of like my identity in the comics community to myself is wrapped up a lot in doing distribution. So I, mm -hmm. I feel like when I retire with air quotes, I'll probably still run the distro in some fashion, but it will be, it's going to go back down to those like 12 people that I wrote to in 1992. You know, I'll right probably, on. I'll always carry Jenny's stuff. I'll always carry Jeff Zanuck's stuff. You know, there's certain people, people who, who I have a really deep personal relationship with mm -hmm. through comics. I'll still want to help those people out and I'll, I enjoy going to the post office and stuff like that. So I, I'll probably keep like one little toe in it, but nothing like, I mean, at the, at its height, a couple of years ago, I had about a thousand different books in stock. Right. And it just got to be too much for one guy to handle. You know, I just, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And then I started to feel bad because I started to make like mistakes with people's orders or, I mean, you should see the amount of books that I have that need to go online that are just waiting and waiting because I just don't have the time to do it. And, you know, the way it works is if I put up a dozen new books on the website, and I mean, I'm not complaining about this. It's just the way it works. I mean, I just get deluged with orders. And so I kind of have to like work my way through all those orders until it kind of peters out to some manageable level. And then I'll post new stuff. And for the last year or so, there just hasn't really been a break like that. So I feel like I can't do as good of a job as I used to do at it anymore. And I think it's kind of natural. You know, I am just 
getting older. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm in my 50s, but my wife doesn't like me to talk about this because it's so morbid. But <laughs> the men in my family don't make it much past their 50s. You know, my, both my grandfathers died when I think they were 59, 58. My dad died. He was just past his 64th birthday. And so I kind of look at it like if I make it to 64, everything after that's gravy. Right. And I have so many comics that I want to do, so many things I want to do that I think it's just time to like, I feel okay. Like I've contributed to the distro side of things and now it's time to do my own work for a while. Yeah, for sure. So let's talk about your work. Uh, Your lifelong comic series, King Cat, uh, started in 1989, if my research is correct. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, as old as I am. I'm 32. Uh, I was born in 89. (laughs) So uh, that said, you know, like I've got the drawn and quarterly collections. I've been buying them for the past few years. Every time you put out a new issue. Mm -hmm. I want to talk about like the beginning, though, the beginning of King Cat, you know, like where you were, Mm -hmm. what inspired you to make, you know, comics and zines uh, that eventually led to the distro, of course, that you kind of already offered insight into. But what made you want to make King Cat? What was the work like before that? Well, so I was a kid that always drew, always wrote you know, was writing things and I was always obsessed with books. And so, I mean, as long as I can remember. And uh, when I was a little kid, like, you know, eight or nine or whatever, I started making little booklets just on like folded typing paper. And, you know, I draw a cover and some of them were comics. Some of them were just like illustrated stories and things like that. And uh, by the time maybe 82 or 83 rolled around, my dad had a photocopier at his office in Chicago. And so I had the idea. I was like, oh, I can I can take these little books that I'm making and photocopy them and hand them out to my friends at school. And that's how I started. So it was I did that for a bunch of years. I my first I mean, I drew some little like monster comics when I was a kid. I, I did, you know, terrible stuff, just like every young cartoonist. I had a James Bond parody comic strip called James Bombed. <laughs> like bombed, like I, like you got drunk or something. <laughs> yeah. and he was he was Asian double four, and he had all these adventures, and I just like fill up notebooks with them. And then in high school, when I was like into Dungeons and Dragons, I had a, a strip. And I, I mean, looking back, I'm sure it, it was I must have seen Cerebus somewhere because my great idea for a comic book was to have Barbarian Pig. Oh uh, yeah, you know, mm-hmm. and he had all kinds of adventures, and he had like a little group of people. And uh, I discovered punk rock, maybe my junior year of high school or something and that's when like it just really everything changed so i got into that music and that culture and stuff and um i started being exposed to what i found out later were zines you know where punk magazines and things like that that people interview bands and stuff like that so my senior year we did a my friends and i did a a magazine called zozo and it was just the typical high school. We didn't even know. I mean, I didn't know the word zine existed. We called it an underground newspaper, you know, and it was oh, okay. just like funny little articles. I mean, funny. I'm going to use air quotes again because they weren't really that funny, but, you know, we were trying. And it had comics in it and drawings and just stupid stuff. When I went away to college, I started a magazine called Kasoiko, which was like an art and poetry magazine. And then that led to me discovering the actual zine world where, you know, someone that I wrote to uh, showed me a fact sheet five. And just when I saw the fact sheet five, it was just that was it. That was the turning point for me because uh, I just found this whole subculture of people who are into the same exact kind of stuff that I was into, meaning just, you know, making magazines, writing, doing things independently, art, 
and and sharing them through the mail. And so that really was that was the thing. Um, so I did Kosoiko for a couple of years. At one point, I sent away for Julie Doucet's Dirty Plot Zines. Mm-hmm. And that was the direct inspiration for me uh, wanting to start King Cat. Um, I, I drew comics that whole time, but never really had like a an actual book since since my Hogarth the Barbarian Pig. Mm-hmm. And uh, the comics were kind of inspired by Linda Berry, mostly. So I was drawing like autobiographical little snippets of things um, or more like poetic kind of comics. And then when I got Dirty Plot, for some reason, I just got really turned on by the idea that all this stuff in it was really seemed so personal from Julie. It was like a really personal way of connecting with the world. Whereas like Kosoiko, I was an editor and I would contribute my own work to it, but I would collect, you know, writing and artwork from other people and put it together in this magazine. And so I started King Cat directly in response to those early dirty plots and, uh, you know, once I got a taste of it, I just, I realized very, very early on, like, this is what I want to do. This is, this is how I want to do it. This is what I want to do. So I've just kept doing it. For sure. And you've got like a whole, you know, lifetime's worth of work. I mean, you went ahead and, you know, dedicated a major part of your life to this one series, you know, hindsight being 2020, do you wish that you would have, you know, taken some different avenues and done it under a different title? Or are you glad that it's collected under one title? No, I'm actually very glad about that. In fact, like, especially as being involved in the distro and the zine world and stuff, so many of my, my friends and peers and stuff had some comic series or whatever that they started and, and they quickly felt like they grew out of it, you know, and they always had, you know, such vulgar. <laughs> so, you know, like, I don't know if I can swear on your podcast, but, no, you know, you like, I sure. mean, the, yeah, the names of these Z, it was like totally fucked. Mm-hmm. You know, there's famously, there was, I think it was Queen Itchy. Everything I touch turns to shit and garbage. Or, you know, even up to look at Fart Party, you know, Julia Wirtz's comic where she just began to cringe every time, you know, she was associated with that, that <laughs> phrase. And so, in a way, I feel lucky that, like, I just randomly chose this title and this format that kind of was neutral, you know, it, it didn't really tell you anything. It didn't say one thing one, one way or the other. And so I was able to adapt itself as I changed, you know, as I, I mean, I started the first King Cat, I was 20 years old. And, you know, so as I kind of grew up and my interests changed and my skills changed and, you know, my life changed, it was able to kind of just evolve along with myself without ever feeling like it was out of date or like things like that. So, I mean, from very, like I say, very early on, I don't know how I had this insight because it wasn't, you know, I don't think it was my goal at the time, but very early on, I realized this kid, I can do anything in comics. And so, this thing, this King Cat, whatever it is, is can be like the place I put all this creative energy and, and it can just change as I as I evolve, it will evolve alongside me. Mm -hmm. And so from, yeah, right away, I realized this is what it's just, this is what I want to do. It's the way I wanted to do it. And um, it just felt right to me. And so I feel lucky that I kind of plopped into this good situation that worked for me pretty early on. Right on. So this is probably getting into semantics a little bit, but I feel like comics and zines exist as like a Venn diagram with an intersection in the middle. I do view them as separate entities. Do you view yourself as more part of the zine community or more of like, you know, the comics community? Uh, Yeah, I have my foot in both worlds, you know, and I certainly love comics. I loved comics from 
time I was a little kid, you know, I was never like super into like, I wasn't into like the superhero stuff or mm-hmm. like, I mean, I had a handful of newsstand comics that I would buy and I'm old enough that you, it really was like, you know, I'd buy them at the train station or whatever, um, off a spinner rack. It, but I only had a handful of comic books. Mostly I just read the newspapers. So a lot of the like newspaper strips were my inspiration or what I thought of when I was trying to make my own comics. Um, what was the question? <laughs> or just like, do you, do you identify? No, you're fine. It's like, do you identify? Oh, more? scenes and comics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I, I, yeah. So, so I definitely love comics, but I do consider King Cat a zine. I mean, and especially early on, it wasn't, there wasn't really, it was things weren't so demarcated or whatever the word would be. So if you got, you know, when I got a fact sheet five, which I'm guessing your listeners may know what it is, but briefly, it, it was a magazine that came out every couple months. You sent your zine in there into fact sheet five, and they would write a little capsule review and include your contact information. So it was like uh, before the internet, it was this this centralized location for getting information about the zine self-publishing subculture. And so, you know, when I started out, I was doing Kosoiko and then I was doing King Cat. But, you know, I would trade King Cat for, you know, a poetry zine or a music zine or, you know, just things that I had interest in. So it wasn't like, you know, well, I can only trade with comics things. And there always has been a history in zines that line between zines and comics is a real weird because comics are such a natural and intuitive and simple creative form that you know even even a zine that isn't nec- isn't really a comic zine made by cartoonists will usually have comics in it or you know oftentimes you know and especially back then there weren't too many comic books that i related to by the time I was in high school, there were like actual comic shops. And so I would go in them periodically and just pick up anything weird that I saw. But I didn't really feel so much of a connection to that world because it seemed like that world of Lloyd Llewellyn or whatever was obviously on such a higher plane <laughs> of existence than the world that I was existing on that it didn't really seem like those things would overlap. But of course, as time went on, and I think that was the great thing about the 90s, comics, self-published, revolution is a corny word to use, but it is kind of was a kind of revolution where it was just like cartoonists who were self-publishing were making work that was at the level of things that Fantagraphics was putting out or, you know, any of the independent comics publishers. And so that's when... I started to feel more like a cartoonist because that world really expanded, mm-hmm. you know. But I still, I mean, to me, I'm still a zine person. And I don't mean this, it's not a derogatory thing because I love comic shows. But zine shows are just like, feel like home to me. They're, they're I get real energized when I'm around zine people. There's just a kind of general kind of curiosity and openness to that world mm-hmm. that is super refreshing. Yeah. You know, where... Yeah. It, well, it's it's definitely interesting you mentioned that because there's definitely like a big difference between a comic show and a zine fest. Like, I feel like a lot of people just call them all shows, but there is definitely a huge difference, in my opinion, between the vibes of the two. Yeah. And I mean, you know, again, I'm not trying to like rank things or whatever. They're just different. You know, as a person, like especially running the distro, if I'm at a comic show, a lot of times people are interested in things they've heard about, you know, so it's like 
Um, I'm going to just throw a name out there. There's nothing personal about it, but like, the, you know, the new Michael DeForge thing is out and people just like kind of scan the table and they zero in on that and they're like, oh, great, you know, and they pick it up. Whereas at a zine show, it's more like someone will come up to my table. They won't really necessarily know what's on the table, but they'll be curious about it. They'll pick up a lot of stuff. They'll spend time flipping through it. You know, they'll uh, maybe ask questions about it. And it's it's kind of like to s- super oversimplify it. Sometimes at comic shows, I think people are looking for certain things that they know that they like and they know that they want. Whereas a zine show, a lot of times, I think people are just looking for something different. They don't really know what they're looking for. They're just looking for something hmm. and they're willing to like try something very new or different. And so... You know, I, I love them both because I love comics, you know, and a good comic show is a thing of beauty. But, you know, the zines, it's just I can't help it. It's just that's where my roots are. And um, I feel so at home at a zine show. Totally. So um, current stuff, zines or comics, what are you reading and liking nowadays? I don't really have much time to read a lot. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. I mostly for like pleasure. I mostly read magazines and um, a lot of biographies. I just finished a new Clinton Halen, Bob Dylan biography. Mm-hmm. Um, but even that, I I don't read so much like I used to. I just don't have that much time or energy, really. But, I mean, this is, for terms of comics, I can't help it. Like, I'm a sucker for really good autobio comics. Mm-hmm. I mean, my favorite cartoonists probably working nowadays are people like Kyla Roberts, Gabrielle Bell. I don't know how to pronounce her last name, but Angela Fanchi, Fanche out of New York, um, who's not really doing autobio stuff anymore. But while the brief period she was doing them was just remarkable. Yeah. EA Bethay. You know, I'm mostly, that's the kind of stuff I'm really interested in is, is real life stuff, you know, but I, I like a lot of different comics. You know, I, re- I read anything from Jack Kirby to Donald Duck comics or whatever and, and really enjoy them. Hell but, yeah. Um, yeah. The stuff that really sinks deep for me is that kind of stuff where it's somebody talking about life and there's some kind of real personal insight there that kind of helps me wrap my head around my own life, you know? Yeah, for sure. So, with with the pandemic changing a lot of things, uh, a lot of people aren't really able to table. Uh, that might change next year, obviously. But uh, I, I've noticed that a lot of people have uh, seen their online sales pick up uh, mm-hmm. as a result of the pandemic. And so, they're kind of making up what they would have been making if they were tabling, some more so. Uh, have you experienced that as well? And do you see that as being maybe some glimmer of hope in terms of the status or the position of zines in the modern world? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I almost, you know, last year, I almost felt guilty because I have so many friends who work in the service industry or whatever, you know, wait staff and cooks and stuff like that, who just had their financial lives decimated, you know. And I mean, last year, Spit and Half was so busy that it was like I said, it was basically, it was very, very hard to keep up, you know? And so, I, I sold a ton of stuff. And I mean, the nice thing about it, and which is one of the things that, you know, besides the personal financial mercenary aspect of doing a distro so I don't have to work at Subway or whatever, is that, I mean, it is helping other cartoonists 
people whose work I love and people who I love as people, you know. And so it felt really good to like send all those payments last year because it was it was phenomenal the way people, you know, comics fans and comics readers really quickly adapted from the show mentality to the online ordering mentality. You know, which was in a way it was good for me because I was getting a lot of comics out there. And I also, you know, by the time COVID hit, I was pretty burned out on shows. You know, mm, I mean, mm-hmm. there, I probably was doing about 14 shows a year at the peak. And, you know, as anybody who does a lot of shows knows and has talked about, it was kind of like there was always that kind of undercurrent lately at shows, at least for me with the artists that I would talk to where it's just like, I don't know how I can keep doing this. You know, it's so exhausting. It's so much work. You always get sick, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, and I mean, shows are great, but it's almost, it, it felt like there was a saturation point that was getting hit. Right. And so I feel good about it. And that was, you know, that was kind of my original thought when I started the distro in 1992 was like, I can do this anywhere. You know, I can do this from Denver, Colorado, because it all it depends on is like, if is there a copy shop in the town? And like, is there a post office? You know what I mean? And, you know, it's the same way here in Beloit. I mean, my cost of living is so low uh, that it's just easy to do this kind of thing. But it kind of reiterated some of those ideas for me. The whole COVID experience was like, I can sit here at this desk and still connect with the world through this, through zines, through comics. So it was pretty easy for me to transition into it, you know, because I'm usually at home anyway. But, you know, I, I got to say, I feel about as optimistic about comics now as I ever have. I, f- I do feel like we're kind of in a new kind of golden age of self-published comics, like truly independent comics. Yeah, it's crazy. It feels like there's a real upswing. Yeah, small press stuff like this, the little publishers and the self-publishers doing things. It it really feels a little bit like 1994 or whatever, where it's just like the amount of stuff that people are producing that is super high quality is kind of crazy. It's hard to keep up with, you know? And, and, you know, I think some of it is not only aesthetically, but I think that people's, you know, this may be a too long of a topic to get into, but the whole like graphic novel revolution and stuff like that, I think that was really helpful for a lot of people. But I think it also created a lot of unrealistic expectations for cartoonists. I agree. And it, it created a whole new terrain that people had to learn to navigate. And I feel like that world has definitely has its place. I think it's an important part of our community. But I think I I feel like people went through that period or that experience and kind of came out the other side and had a chance to like reassess like, okay, well, how did that work? Like what were what what parts of that worked and what part of it didn't work? And I think what we're just finding is that for the like really personal idiosyncratic comics there's and Austin talks about this all the time on social media and I completely agree with them is that like there is a market for this work it's way bigger than anybody thought it was it was way bigger than any established publishers thought it was and it exists in this kind of like middle ground where you know look at like Alex Graham or something who can serialize this this comic online and put it out and sell I don't even know how many copies thousands of copies of her book Right. Yeah. Yeah. Without anybody getting their hands on, you know, there, I mean, any outside kind of 
I hate to use the word gatekeeper or whatever, but you know, without, she didn't need a publisher. I mean, she got turned down by publishers, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's crazy. Yep. And that's not even that. I mean, maybe it's an extreme example uh, because of, I mean, obviously because of the quality of the work and the kind of like community she was able to create during the posting of it daily and stuff like that. But I think that is more the rule than the exception now is, and that's what I think cartoonists are finding out. Like, it's great to have a hardcover book that's, you know, available in bookstores here and there. But it's also great to have a 32-page thing that I self-publish that goes out to a mailing list. And, you know, I look at stuff like, I mean, I look at some of these great, (laughs) I mean, there was a week where like at the distro, I got the new tongues from Anders Nelson. I got the new fielder from Kevin Heisinger. I got the new crickets from Sammy Heisinger. I got the new worn tough elbow from Mark Bell. What a week, yeah. These are people who are just like. (laughs) Those are like four people who are like premier cartoonists, right, of our age. Yeah. And they're self-publishing these magazines themselves. And they're not doing it. I mean, partially they're doing it because it probably wouldn't, it wouldn't make sense for a publisher to take on those kind of projects. But that's the project that they want to do. That's how they want to do it. And not so not only aesthetically is it satisfying, but financially it's it's satisfying too. But they're able to make a living doing this this work in that way. And that's what I mean. Like it's, uh, it's exciting to me as a person who's like such a firm believer in self-publishing and this kind of like underground subculture, this network of artists connecting with readers. It really is a golden age. It's amazing. Well, and I want to ask you about self-publishing because in that Austin English interview that I mentioned earlier, it was either earlier this year or 2020, you mentioned that whenever you talk to, you know, classrooms or, you know, you give a a lecture somewhere that you'll bring, you know, a copy of King Cat, which is self-published and then, you know, a copy of your Drawn Quarterly book. And pretty much the point that you emphasize to them is you make more money off the self-published books. So are you a firm believer that self-publishing is the way you know, what makes you want to collect them if you're making less money? Is it just to get the material out there so you don't have to keep it in print? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a little bit of all that stuff. I mean, first of all, it's, it's not, I I love books, you know, it's not Mm. like I have some sort of fetish for photocopying or whatever. It's like, I'm excited to have a box of books arrive from D&Q, you know, with my new book in it and stuff. And it serves a purpose. And I guess that's partially, that's what I talk to a lot of times when I'm talking to like, cartooning students or young cartoonists or whatever is if you're gonna like survive doing this you kind of have to have your irons in a lot of fires right so like i know that those drawn and quarterly books reach people that the zine just won't mm-hmm. and for a lot of reasons i mean there's people who just don't trust zines they they'll be like <laughs> i don't want to send five dollars in the mail to this guy or you know i don't want to press whatever online you know or there's just you know there still are people who look at a zine you know, and like, oh, is this the ash can? You know, and I'm like, no, that's the thing. That's it. That's the art. That's it right there. You're holding it. So, you know, the books get into bookstores. Drawn and Quarterly has like a promotional capability that I don't have or will never, you know, I don't even want to have. I don't want to do that stuff. They, you know, they do that kind of stuff for me. And and then for every person who maybe hears a new book of mine comes out and they hear about it and it sounds interesting and they pick it up, they like it. There's a whole back catalog or whatever for them to say, oh, there's this and there's this. And a lot of those people will write and get a subscription to the King Cat zine or whatever. So, you know, the books serve that kind of purpose and the zines serve a different purpose, but they're all kind of 
working together to allow me to be a cartoonist in 2021. Right. You know, as far as the financial aspect of self-publishing, you know, like I mentioned, I mean, it it, it takes a long time to make self-publishing pay for itself, right? Mm -hmm. You know, and that was always, that was really, that was my goal with the distro was like, I'd like it to be able to, so I can pay my printing bill when I have a new King Cat out and, you know, not have to work in a warehouse. But if you keep at it and keep things growing and, you know, if you have some kind of core talent or way that you present life that appeals to readers, then eventually it will turn into a thing where, you know, I, I make money doing King Cat. And the, the thing that I tell students, too, is, you know, when I publish a King Cat nowadays, I've done it so many times that it's always different, but you have a general idea like, okay, I'm going to sell X number of copies in the first three months, you know, payments from stores are going to come in at a certain point, And I have this many subscribers. So like this part is already paid for. And it's something that you can kind of plan for and think about in a budget sense. Um, whereas, you know, when I get my royalty checks from DNQ, sometimes it's $2,000 and sometimes it's $200. And sometimes if I bought too many books from them, I owe them $200. You right. know what I'm saying? So it's, it, it's not the kind of thing like, you know, rents due at the end of the month, but I'm getting that royalty check because you just, it's a crapshoot, you know? I mean, unless you're, you know, if, unless you're like Stephen King or something whatever. But for the kind of people that, you know, my peers and stuff, it's great, but it's kind of hard to count on it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. So, I just, I learned to look at my royalty checks as kind of like bonuses or windfalls. It's like, great, you know. So, with self-publishing, I mean, I certainly wouldn't be able to live independently as an artist if I wasn't self-publishing. So, to me, it's, it's the way to go. And I, you know, it's not for everybody, but Whenever I can, I try to encourage artists to c at least consider that avenue because I, I just think it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, for sure. Alrighty. So, John, we did get some questions from the listeners for you. Uh, as always, uh, listeners, you can participate with the show and ask our guests questions. Just follow us on Instagram. We always put up questionnaires. You could also follow us on Twitter or email them to us at gutterboyspodcast at gmail.com. And on social media, we are at gutterboyspod. First question came from Instagram user fathers underscore puka underscore shells dot exe. What is your favorite Dylan album? I would say that it is probably bringing it all back home because it's got the both sides. It's got the crazy electric stuff and it's got the crazy acoustic stuff too. You know, the acoustic songs on that album are every bit as intense as the as the electric things. And uh, I mean the sixties. Dylan is my, is my favorite Dylan, for sure. I kind of liked the stuff he did in the 90s, too, which is kind of remarkable to say that about a musical artist. But, you know, I'm definitely a fan of that original crazy Wild Mercury sound years. There was a point where after my first divorce, <laughs> I had to count, after my first divorce, where um, I made a tape of bring it all back home on one side and high, highway 61 on the other. And that got me through a lot of really hard times. Mm -hmm. So I, I would say bring it all back home is my favorite though. I, I really love anything from freewheeling through Nashville skyline. Hell yeah. And I like the 70s stuff, but it's, it's a different thing. I almost want to say, um, I, I get, I'd have to say bring it all back home is my favorite, but John Wesley Harding is right up there too. That's a really intense weird, powerful record. 
Instagram user Tazo Artsog asks, can you talk about the hearts? Oh, the hearts in my comic. I know that I'm sure that like if you were going to do a parody of King Cat, you could throw a lot of really good hearts in there and make, get a lot of mileage out of it. <laughs> but the hearts, the hearts in King Cat are just um, a little shortcut symbol of saying, I mean, it could be love, but I think it's something a little bit more than that. It's kind of a feeling of this is going to get a little pretentious, but uh, like kind of an overwhelming sense of connection. Mm hmm. Um, that goes beyond even just something as common as, as love or affection or something. It's kind of a, almost a kind of a cosmic love, maybe, is what I mean by the heart, usually. Mm. Uh, Instagram user Joey Fennell asked, would love to know about his work routines and schedules. We usually ask about that on the show, but I knew this question was coming. So what's a normal day look like for you as far as like working on the comic and the distro, et cetera? Uh, it's, well, it's, it's hard because, uh, I've, I've struggled a lot with it. I think a lot of cartoonists do. Um, some of it has to do with my own like personal self-esteem problems, but I have, I have, it's very easy for me to like pack orders instead of working on my own work. So I have to like really pay attention to what I'm doing. And the, one of the things that I've done that is very helpful for me is I divide, I try to work eight hours a day and I try to have kind of a set schedule. So I try to work like nine to five, like a regular job, and I divide it up into two hour increments. And so what I've learned is I have to do my own personal work first. Otherwise, I will find reasons not to do it, not to draw. <laughs> so I start out, um, try to start out working on my own stuff for a couple hours. Then I usually do distro stuff for a couple hours. I take a little break. I try to remember because I usually forget to eat lunch and then I get real sick. So I usually try to do try to take a little bit of a break and eat something and stretch out or go for a walk or something. And then I work on other projects. So like working on the contents of a book or commissioned work or emails and stuff like that. And then the last two hours of that eight hour day are kind of flex time. So like if I have a bunch extra orders that day or something, I'll use that time to catch up on those a little bit. Or if like I'm working on King Cat and it's like flowing like crazy and it's feeling really good and I'm just like going gangbusters, then I'll use that to give myself some extra time to work on that. And I'm really bad at following that schedule, but that is the best trick that I've found personally for me in order to like stay productive at all the different myriad things you have to do throughout the day as a cartoonist. Like I mentioned, all the different irons that are in the fire, you know, right. doing commissions, packing orders, answering emails, drawing comics, you know. So that's the best trick that I found. And when I can stick with that, I get a lot more stuff done than usual, you know, without getting into the gory details of my personal psychology. But um, I have a hard time allowing myself to do creative work. And so I kind of have to like create a, a set time where it's like, you are going to work on King Cat, even if it's not drawing, even if it's just like editing a story in your notebook or something, you mm -hmm. know, or making a list or whatever. But you got to you got to have that time. Otherwise, I'll never give myself that time. Is that a problem that you've had since the beginning or is it something that's gradually started to peak it definitely has got, I mean, my self-esteem has been shitty since I was a teenager, but <laughs> but my ability to cope with it has gotten worse over time. I mean, it gets worse and then it gets better. And 
it's just, you know, without, like I said, without getting into the gory details of it, I think the way I was raised, I was raised in one of those families where it was like, you're supposed to have some kind of job you don't like. And if you don't, you're somehow cheating, Mm -hmm. you know? And so it's very Midwest. (laughs) It's very, very Midwest. And if you're from the Midwest, you know what I'm talking about. I I actually, not to bring Austin up against, but I remember one time when I was living in San Francisco, he's from out there and he came to, he was visiting his mom. And so we were just going for a walk one day in Golden Gate Park and we were talking about this stuff because his mom, I mean, his, and his childhood was very rough. It was very poor, right? She was like Mm -hmm. an artist. I think she like did pottery or something like that. And she's trying to raise this kid on her own. So I'm not saying it was great in any way, except that when I talked to him about like, yeah, I was basically raised that like, making art is shameful. Like I'm bringing shame on the family by doing this. And I remember looking in his eyes, and I was talking about all this psychological baggage I have. And you could just tell that like, for as hard as his upbringing was, he never had to deal with that. He never, he like, he didn't understand how a person could have that kind of thought that like, I'm an artist, therefore I'm a very bad person. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So I've always had it, you know, and it, it kind of gets better and gets worse. I mean, I had a real thing when, like my dad died when I was about, I want to say I was about 40 years old. Mm-hmm. I'd have to figure out the math. So I had one of those things where it was just like, like it was one of those things where I just woke up and I'm, I have to give myself permission to do this. I have to give myself permission to like be who I am supposed to be, which is a cartoonist, you know? And, uh, I can get some mileage from that for a while, but a, a lot of that stuff just ends up dumping on me. Uh, so it's a constant struggle, honestly. I, I don't think I'll ever fully get over it in my lifetime so Hmm. it's just it's it's too it's like imprinted in my brain is all this negative stuff Hmm. i do think it's funny every once in a while when i'm like packing orders for the disc show and i mean really what i am doing is working in a warehouse it's just i'm working in my own warehouse you know i'm working in (laughs) i I work in shipping and receiving it just happens that like the stuff i'm shipping is like my friend's books (laughs) yeah (laughs) and uh, i think about that a lot like wow no wonder, like, I found this, like, I found this way to, like, sneak, <laughs> to sneak through this, like, terrible self-worth terrain, you know? Like, yeah, I'll do manual labor for a living, but it's this kind of manual labor where, like, technically I'm my own boss. Right. And it's somehow that allows me to, to satisfy all these different forces going on in my head. Yeah, I'd imagine that's way more satisfying than clocking in and dealing with the manager. Oh, for sure. And, I mean, you know. it, it, it gets, it get, you know, and it, as great as like last year was, there were days when I just, I wanted to cry because I, I would work and work, I'd work 12 hours or I'd work 14 hours. And at the end of the day, I had as many orders as I had at the beginning, which is great, mm-hmm. you know, if you are a business, but it's hard when you're the only guy. Sure, yeah. <laughs> But I realized that the alternative really, and especially living where I live, the alternative truthfully is I either work at Subway or Walmart. So, right. it's, I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, for The sure. lesser of the two evils. Sure. <laughs> All right. Next question. Actually, this is like a twofer. Instagram user Pilko Art, as well as a friend of the show, Ben Sears. I'm going to combine their questions. Uh, Pilko asked, groundhogs or naked mole rats? And Ben wants to know what the 2021 groundhog count is. Ooh, I got nothing against naked mole rats, but I have a thing for groundhogs, so I'm going to have to say groundhogs. I'm sure if I had a naked mole rat 
in my hoodie right now, I'd be in seventh heaven. The groundhog count, I feel terrible because I've been really disorganized with it this year. So usually I keep a Excel database of all my groundhog sightings and I keep notes like the number and where they were seen and what time and any kind of funny little notes that happen when I see them. And this year I have a notebook in my car. So when I'm driving around, I'll, I'll write down at the end of the day, like what, who I saw and what, but I haven't actually entered them into my database in a long time. And I'm sitting in front of my computer. So I'm going to bring up that database right now for your listeners. <laughs> and strap in folks yeah strap in let's see if i if i hear we out i get 2021 woodchuck count uh, i'm up to 88 but that was back in may so i haven't actually updated my database in that long let me check again and see what last year's was it's going to be close to last year last year though was a bumper year a lot of juvenile woodchucks so you know, I'd go to my typical woodchuck spotting site and I might see five of them. I might see the mom and four little babies. I had 478 in 2020. Oh, wow. Which was okay. huge. Yeah. yeah. That was that was like huge. And that was partially huge because of all the little kids, the little baby woodchucks, but also like because of COVID. So like I actually got in my car every evening after working and doing all my stuff and did a kind of like groundhog loop. And I spent an inordinate amount of time listening to the cubs on the radio and driving around looking for groundhogs. It was like my way of unwinding from the global pandemic. So yeah, a lot. 478. That's got to be a record. Yeah, that's a lot. But it's going to be close this year, but I I don't think it's going to hit 478. Right on. All right. Awful Quiet asked... Best or favorite cat toy? Cat toy. The cat, you know, our cats are like a lot of cats and that the, the more cat toys you buy for them, the less interested they are in them. Right. We do have a couple of mice and we live in a house that's over 100 years old. So we get a lot of mice this time of year in the house and uh, we have two cats. They're pretty ruthless. But about this time of the year, if they're not actually like chasing down real mice, our cat Big Boy, who's the older one, the the boy cat, he does get really into his little stuffed mice. Like he'll carry them up the stairs and howl and stuff. And I actually kept track for a little while, like where I found the little gray stuffed mouse in the different places every morning. So they love that kind of stuff. Mostly, I mean, we got two dogs too, and they're really into the toys. So my dog, Iris, she's a Sharpay. Her favorite dog toy is one, it's called Blonde Bubby. It's like this softball sized fuzzy yellow thing. I think it's supposed to be a duck. I think it has some kind of like bill on it, but the bill is kind of all chewed up and messed up. And then our dog, Arlo, I kind of see he has a lot of different toys. I'd say his favorite is Froggy. And that's like a big green frog with like a light green spiky hair. Hell yeah. My cat Michi does not play with toys. She refuses. (laughs) Out of principle. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's beneath her. (laughs) All right. Every uh, guest gets this question. Uh, Nate Garcia asked, John, what did you have for breakfast this morning? Be honest. Be honest, I had a bowl of granola and like, uh, I forget what it's called, what brand it is, but it's like a sugar-free caffeine drink kind of thing. Okay. 
It was blueberry flavored. Not a coffee guy? I am a coffee guy, although I easily become addicted to coffee. Mm-hmm. So I, tr- you know, I'm what I'm addicted to is the caffeine, right? So I'm just fooling myself. But I do tr- like every couple days, I take a little break from coffee. So like one or two days off. But um, normally I just I have a lot of coffee in the morning. And, uh, and that's it for the day. If I drink if I have caffeine too late, then I'm up all night. And that's no good for anybody. All right, Siladon Gorilla asked, anyone ever offer you an exuberant amount of money for the rights to the King Cat's comics name? King Cat comics name? No. I wish. <laughs> I'll tell that in a second. Yeah. <laughs> no, I wouldn't. I would never sell it. It's priceless. Uh, but no. Everybody's got a price. I, I've never, yeah. You know, luckily I've never had to, um, to wrestle with selling out. I've never really had an offer. So I have, th- I have thought like I, every once in a while, I do think that the perfect example is probably too late now. Actually, I take it back because it's probably like prime nostalgia, Hollywood nostalgia zone now. But every once in a while, I think like the perfect example book that, that would make like a good like Hollywood movie. Yeah, know? yeah, I can see that. But uh, unfortunately, nobody's offering anything. So. Link up with the guys that uh, made Noah's recent uh, short film. I know. I yeah. need to because I, I, I listened to your, your talk with him. And uh, he doesn't really talk about it when I talk to him, so I don't I don't know what's going on with that stuff. But yeah, I, but I, I don't you know I don't want no little indie thing. <laughs> I want I want if I'm gonna do it, I want like big bucks. Yeah. I want I want like Hollywood casting. Yeah, if you're going to get to that I want, point, I want, as well go I all want in. Judd Nelson to play me. <laughs> Hell yeah! <laughs> all righty, a uh, friend of the show, Alex Knoll, asked, "What's the most beautiful song ever written?" Ah. Uh, that's impossible to say. Uh, Gymnopédie number one by Eric Satie, maybe. I mean, that's definitely the saddest song ever written, and it probably is also the most beautiful song ever written. Maybe Surf's Up by the Beach Boys. <laughs> that's, that's beautiful. Yeah, it's a good one. And sad, too. You know, I like sad stuff, so I don't know. Beautiful Waterloo Sunset by the Kinks is pretty beautiful. I'll go with those three. All right. Anderson Crook asks, recommended Zen books. Oh, actually, if you go to my Blogspot blog, there's a whole list of them because people ask me that all the time. What's on my list? Buddhist books or Zen Buddhist books, did they say? They said Zen books. Zen books. Okay, Mm -hmm. I'm going to go with uh, number one is Opening the Hand of Thought by Kosho Uchiyama Roshi. And that... um, to me at least, and it's going to be different for everybody, but that Zen teacher, Uchiyama Roshi, was like simultaneously very traditional, but also super modern. And in that book in particular, he goes into, he talks about a lot of stuff, but he talks about the kind of rudiments of Zen meditation, which is kind of the base of the whole practice, and uh, explains it in in really, really simple terms. Like there's, there, he doesn't use jar- a lot of jargon or whatever. So I would say that's a good one. It's a more general Buddhist book, but there's a translation of the Dhammapada by Eknath Iswaran. And the Dhammapada is like the original traditional, his probably actually historical teachings of the Buddha from his lifetime. Um, so it's, it's really the core Buddhist teachings. Um, but the thing I like about that book is that there's like a 30 page introduction that is one of the best, most accessible, clear, explications of the Buddhist worldview I've ever read. 
So th- those two I would recommend. But if, if you if you go to maybe blogging will help, that's my wonderful blog that I haven't updated in like a year. It'll there'll be a list of those for you, and I, I would start with some of those. But those are my two personal favorites. Hell yeah! All righty. Last question came from Josh Pettinger. Uh, Josh asked, "Does he ever worry that he'll forget what issue of King Cat he's on and number an issue wrong?" I worry about that all the time, actually, and it's getting harder and harder for me to the point where I do actually double check that like three times, <laughs> triple check it before I print it because there's just been so many at this point. Right. And I was thinking about this this morning, and I think one of the problems is that it takes me so damn long to do each issue now. So like, I'm working on 81. All that's left for 81 is I have to do the cover drawing, and then I can start like scanning stuff in and getting it ready for the printer. But I've been working on 81 since like January. Mm-hmm. So I think there's part of it it's in my brain feels like 81 has already been published. Right. If that makes sense. It's like I've lived with these stories and these drawings for so long now that it just seems like, oh, that must have already come out. Right. No. But I do actually worry about that. I, I've done it in my notebook, definitely, times where I've, like, I'll make notes for King Cat 79, and then I'll realize, oh, I published King Cat 79 last year. Like, this is, I'm up to 80. So I, I have done it behind the scenes, but luckily not, I uh, haven't embarrassed myself yet by publishing it with the wrong number. But I, I honestly, I would not, um, the way my brain is going, declining rapidly, I wouldn't put it past me to, to screw that up sometime soon. <laughs> All right. Well, John, we definitely appreciate you coming on the show. Um, it was a pleasure to talk to you as, you know, a fan and, sure. you know, a quote unquote professional. But uh, where can people find you online? I know you got a Patreon. Where can people buy your books? <laughs> Check out the distro while it's here. Um, well, spitandahalf.com is the distro that has everything that I have in print is available there and lots more by all kinds of really cool artists. Like I'm not on TikTok. I don't really know what that is. (laughs) I'm on all that other stuff. I have a Patreon that um, I've gotten more and more into. It's really kind of saved my life. It's been incredible, the um, support I've found there. And so a lot, you know, actually, this is another topic, but a, a lot of my work goes into the Patreon now. So I like write a couple different essays and articles per month. I do comics specifically for the Patreon a couple times a month. Hmm. Those will be collected in a book sometime soon. So, you know, people who aren't on my Patreon will get access to them eventually. But um, I do, I, a lot of my energy goes into that Patreon now. So if you, you know, if you're a person who's into that kind of thing and has three bucks to spare per month or something, you can check that out. But otherwise, I kind of on Facebook a lot just to chat with people like my readers and stuff. I, I find even though it's it's so scary and awful, I do find it's that's probably the best for me in terms of actually having like being able to engage in a dialogue with people. You know, it seems like my fans are pretty active on Facebook. But and then there's Twitter, which I basically just at this point use for like posting non sequiturs. But <laughs> 
because uh, yeah, fa- Twitter scares me. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah, not it's for the a bad heart. place. Yeah, you just gotta you just gotta uh, pull yourself yeah. over your bootstraps on I, that. I one. really, yeah, I really. I mean, people talk about how evil Facebook is, and I do think that somehow, like, I don't have a lot of like crazy uncles or anything. You know, yeah. I, my family is very small, and most of them don't even never touch computers, so I don't have the like typical like, oh my god, my uncle went on my whatever. Um, and I do think that because mostly it's people that I know through comics, and I think it's kind of maybe a self-selecting kind of group. Mm-hmm. I usually don't really have any hassles on Facebook with people, you know, but yeah, Twitter, Twitter does scare me. So I, I've, I've learned basically to use it to post like pictures of cats and write, you know, dumb one-liners or whatever that absurd one-liners. That's the right way to use it. Yeah, yeah, it's it's for jokes and arguing. Yeah. See, and that's the, the thing that I realized very early on is that I don't like arguing. And, yeah. and I'm not good at it. I'm not like I don't I know that I feel like some people really enjoy it, you know, and they're good at it. Right. So I'm, I would imagine that it's like somewhat satisfying to like parry people's thrusts and stuff like that. But it just I don't like arguing with people <laughs> about stuff. And so I, I have learned uh to just stick with the one-liners. Hell yeah. All right. Well, uh, John, thanks again for coming on. And uh, listeners, as always, you know, stay gutter. There's a guy you're with. It's like a love full of soul.